We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. We welcome you this evening to our service at Fellowship Bible Church. Thank you, John. Appreciate that. We are, I think, live online here. So, Father, as we begin now to read the Word, I pray that you'd help us to focus our attention upon it. Lord, help us to take hold of the issues of life as our sister has and found a way to offer thanks even in the midst of that and ask what should we learn from this, even as Christ learned obedience, the Scripture says, through the things that He suffered. He learned how it was in experience to submit Himself to the will of the Father, as we must do also so we commit our ways to you tonight that way and pray for your help that we would live for you. Work in our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are going to read in our Bibles um, in Second Chronicles 5, uh, if you would turn there. Second Chronicles and the fifth chapter now. I'll give you a minute to turn there. If you're at home, too, I encourage you to turn there. I know I can't see you and you don't have that accountability, but it's still good to open your word, a copy of God's word, and follow along. I'm reading from the New King James Version, as most often the case here from the pulpit. Not always, but most often. Second Chronicles 5, it says, So all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and all the furnishings, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of God. Okay, here's an accounting of the completion of the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where they would then for hundreds of years have their central altar and place of worship assigned to them to go the males three times a year and any other time when they wanted to worship God and offer sacrifice. Verse 2, now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers and the children of Israel in Jerusalem, that they might bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord up from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with the king at the feast, which was in the seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came and the Levites took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark the tabernacle of meeting and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle, the priests and the Levites brought them up. Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the ark were sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. The poles extended so that the ends of the poles of the ark could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary 
but they could not be seen from outside. and They are there to this day. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they had come out of Egypt. And it came to pass when the priests uh, came out of the most holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without keeping uh, to their divisions, and the Levites who were the singers, all those of Asaph and Heman uh, and Jeduthun with their sons and their brethren, stood at the east end of the altar, clothed in white linen, having cymbals, stringed instruments and harps, and with them 120 priests sounding with trumpets. Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and the singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voices with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever, that the house of the Sorry, that, that the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. And we're going to come to the prayer of dedication of Solomon, a very lengthy chapter next time. But uh, there it is, the completion of the Jewish temple and the dedication of it coming. Let's, yes. I knew somebody was going to be wondering that. Um, I would love to know the answer to that question. The question, for those of you that couldn't hear, was what happened to the other contents of the ark? Those other contents were what, Jack? Do you remember? Two other things. The pot of manna, uh, we'll say the uh, sample food that they had uh, there in the wilderness, and uh, Aaron's rod that budded. And the text of Scripture nowhere records what happened to them that I know of. So, we're, you know, it's shrouded in some mystery. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant has been shrouded in some mystery itself over the years, hasn't it? And uh, been the subject of uh, some lore and legend, something like the Holy Grail in the New Testament times. So, I don't know. I wish I did. But... Uh, Yes, Anne is observing that those both came from something that was alive. Uh, you think the, the manna was that way? I mean, it wasn't a plant, was it? It was like a plant, kind of like a coriander seed, it says. Can you imagine making that every day? Boiled, fried, uh, what, all the different ways you could think to prepare it, <laughs> spice it. Yes, cinnamon manna, pepper manna. <laughs> yes, now that's an interesting question, it's, and it's uh, also fascinating because you just couldn't go and take things out and put things into the ark any old time you please. That was a uh, dangerous business to be... Uh... Yeah, well, they... Well, they may have, uh, the Philistines may have done something with it. Things may have gotten lost in the shuffle there in 1 Samuel. What chapter is that around? Early part of 1 Samuel when they, uh, Israel lost the ark and then uh, got it back. But the Philistines did not get by without punishment. Remember, they were severely 
uh, tormented and, um, how can I say, plagued is really the right word. Yes, sir? It's chapter 5. Okay, I wasn't too far off. Chapter 5 of 1 Samuel, that is where that is found. So that is entirely possible. Um, It's also possible that Moses could have removed it after a while. you know, Aaron's rod or the the manna. I kind of wondered that myself about the manna, if it would have um, bred worms and stank after a while, (laughs) like it did on the the seventh day. Remember when they gathered, when they tried to, uh, when they actually, when they tried to keep the manna over on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, it it, uh, turned rotten, but not on, not on uh, Friday into Saturday. So, yes. Yes. Well, see, the thing is, it's only under the cherubim at this point. Yes, uh, here at least in the in the temple. But in any case, very interesting, uh, very interesting question. God did, uh, I believe, do a number of things throughout the, the biblical history to avoid His people worshiping objects or people or shrines like Moses' body. Can you imagine what a zoo it would be at a, a place that was known to be Moses' grave today even, hundreds and thousands of years later? So the Lord very wisely uh, got rid of some of those things. You know, the, the Garden of Eden is gone, the Ark is gone, and uh, probably just destroyed by normal means, you know, war, uh, a flood, maybe, for the Garden of Eden. And um, so we don't need to, you know, be going around digging in basements and trying to find <laughs> the ark uh, or finding it in some uh, government warehouse or something like that. So, <laughs> yeah, in any case. Any other questions on that reading? All right. Let's turn our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, please, tonight. In your New Testament, you'll find it, second book in the New Testament, and I'll tell you why we're going there just now. Uh, For three or four sessions now, we have looked at the concept in the Scriptures of a disciple, a disciple of Jesus Christ. And um, the idea of a disciple, we learned, is a follower, is a student, is a pupil. Uh, Today, there are people who have... Uh, disciples and people who follow as a disciple, uh, say a teacher, a guru, um, a philosopher. You know, I follow the school of X philosophy or I follow this, uh, this business uh, leadership guru like Maxwell or something like that. And uh, so th- that sort of thing does exist today. But this is a concept, a general concept, which is applied in Christian theology that is very important because every Christian is a disciple of Jesus Christ. There's, there can be no biblical question about that. There's no such thing as a believer, a true believer in Christ who's not a disciple. We've labored to make that point over the years in contradistinction to those who um, try to teach otherwise, try to make discipleship some kind of optional add-on package, you know, options package to Christianity. It's not the case whatsoever. Um, but discipleship is, is inherent in what it is to be a Christian. So we looked at a number of texts that talk about this phrase, my disciple. Uh, we looked at some truths about disciples. In fact, I had listed them, and the notes are available on the website if you want them. 
there are uh, 31 characteristics of disciples. And my, my burden with this message was, was really this. Since the Bible tells us that we're to make disciples and baptize them and to teach them everything that Jesus has commanded, we better know what our end product is. We better know what is supposed to come out at the end of our uh, assembly line, so to speak, to use a manufacturing analogy. What are we building? What are we making? We're making and maturing disciples who are becoming like Jesus Christ, and we're, uh, so we need to know what that is, what that looks like. And so we got to start to get a really good picture of what a disciple looks like, uh, how he is characterized, what he does, what he doesn't do, and uh, things like that. Now, I should mention, you will pr- probably run into somebody who will say, look, this whole study that Pastor Matt has done is all from, so far at least, uh, all from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Well, that doesn't really apply to us today. You know, really, it's, it's uh, Acts, and especially Romans, all the way through to the end of the New Testament. I, uh, I know where that idea comes from. I reject it entirely. Uh, the Bible is very clear that the New Testament teaching of Jesus and of the, uh, the apostles in the, in the letters that they wrote is all applicable to us, and uh, we cannot just simply set it aside and say, well, it belongs to another age, or that will be for the future, or something of that nature. Uh, this is highly relevant to us, and I know that... Uh, Probably most, if not all of you, agree with that here in this audience, but there are some who don't. Um, so we looked at those. We also looked at one of uh, another thing that was near and dear to me, and that is as I was studying, I, I kind of sub, uh, how could I say, segregated a set of texts off to the side, which are in my notes section, Roman numeral three, which is shortcomings and challenges of disciples. And this is near to my heart because we, you know, myself and you and my counseling with people are often dealing with disciples, well, we're always dealing with disciples who aren't perfect yet. And so you, you see shortcomings and challenges in yourself and in, uh, in others and perfectly, you know, we struggle with that. So if I say to you, you know, the Lord is trying to perfect your faith, don't hear that to be saying that you don't have any faith. That's not what that's saying. That's saying you have a baseline faith, and it's growing, and God is working to perfect that. In fact, in partial answer, uh, Becky, to your uh, testimony earlier this evening, the Scriptures tell us in 2 Corinthians, Paul, exampling for us, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, which breast cancer of the stage three or four would certainly be close enough to that, to apply, that uh, we would learn not to trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, and that we would receive comfort, the kind of comfort only God can give. So we're to learn to trust in God in the midst of these trials. You are learning that as you age, as you face some terrible health trial, uh, and, you know, I'm thinking of that for myself. You know, how's that going to work out for me? <laughs> my, my, faith, my faith has got to grow too, just like yours does. How is God going to work that in our lives? Uh, we looked at uh, sometimes the fact that the disciples are a bit slow on the uptake. Um, you know, P- 
Peter was quick in some ways, you know, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, but then Jesus said, I have to be delivered over to the hands of sinful men and be mocked and crucified and rise again from the dead. And Peter said, wait a minute, that's not... Well, he was a little slow on the, to grasp what the Lord was doing, what his program was. Sometimes a disciple grasps what the Lord is teaching, but, you know, takes it too far. You know, Peter going out whacking people with the sword is one example. Just, you know, Peter, not so zealous now. Just back up a little bit. Sometimes disciples do the wrong thing because they don't understand the ways of God, you know. Lord, should we call fire out of heaven down upon them because they're not following after us? The Lord said, look, you don't know what spirit you're of. That's not right. Sometimes the Lord's uh, disciples are amazed at the work of the Lord and it demonstrates a, a bit of a lack of faith. Have you ever had a big prayer request that's answered and then you say, I can't believe it. What do you mean you can't believe it? Did you pray to God in faith? Did you trust him? So sometimes our amazement does hint at a little bit of a lack of faith. Sometimes uh, disciples are impressed by things that are not that important. And what that's, well, let me give the example first. We, we looked at this one before, and that was the disciples said, Lord, look at this architecture. Look at these humongous stones that are piled on, you know, not piled, set on top of one another and, and, and the building of the temple and the temple mount and the retaining walls and all of that. And it was tremendous architecture, and I kind of get interested in that sort of thing myself too. I like that sort of stuff, buildings and technology of building and stuff. And uh, there was some tremendous things there, but you know what? That's not all that important. That's not all that important because in the end, it's not going to matter at all. The most impressive edifices will be destroyed and will be no more in, in the eternal state. There'll be other edifices to replace them. Um, so, and what that shows is that disciples, although we are drawn heavenward, we still have uh, bands or cords or strings that are tying us down in our interests to this world. And there's nothing wrong with having a, you know, an in moderation, interests in this world and using the things that God has given us to enjoy. But we have to hold them, as some have said, kind of loosely because eventually they're going to go away. We'll accumulate all you know we do in our accumulation years and then we'll end up selling it, giving it away, or just dying and then our family has to sell it or give it away. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's how it goes. Sometimes disciples uh, look at things incorrectly. You know, when... Uh, Mary came and offered that ointment on Jesus, poured it on his head. She was anointing him for his burial. The, the disciples thought, well, that's kind of a waste. Actually, it was an extravagant worship is what it was. It wasn't a waste on, uh, on God. So, well, I better hasten along here. There are a number of other of those that we already went over. In Mark's gospel, let me touch on a few of these with you. I have Luke also and John in my notes in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 2 is an example where uh, in verse number 16, it says, And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And verse 18, The disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why did the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? 
And the point here that I drew from this is disciples can be criticized at times for what the Lord is doing or what the Lord does. In other words, we face criticism for what the Lord has taught us, for what they themselves sometimes do. You know, they weren't washing their hands like they were supposed to. Uh, They were eating with tax collectors and sinners. They were not fasting. And so they faced criticism on account of being associated with Jesus. That's okay. That's, that comes with the territory, facing criticism. I hope that you are strong enough of backbone to not be crushed when you're criticized for the sake of the Lord, that you are a little bit of a, how can I say, a stubborn in a good way when it comes to, you know, your lifestyle is not accepted by your neighbors. Who cares? God is the one you're trying to please. Secondly, disciples are privileged to have the help of the Lord in understanding the Bible. Mark chapter 4 and verse 34. Mark chapter 4 and verse 34. Jesus was teaching to them in parables, and that had a particular purpose in his mind as to why he was doing that in that method of teaching. It says in verse 34, But without a parable he did not speak to them, And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. Do you know as a Christian person, if you follow the Lord, if you've committed your life to him, the Spirit of God therefore has come into you, you have the ability to understand the Bible that somebody not in your shoes doesn't have. In the case of the disciples here, back in the first century when the Lord was present, they had him himself to teach them. And this occurs in a number of other passages in Scripture as well. But the, the thing is, it's just such a privilege to think about it and say, hey, look, at the Lord has helped me to understand the Bible. And that, that comes to my attention, you know, I don't know how to say, like certain times more than others. You know, when I really am working on a passage of Scripture I've got the the pencil and the paper out, and I've got the Bible there, and I'm saying, what am I going to do with this section of Scripture? And the Lord helps me to understand, I believe, through all the means that he applies in that. We are grateful for that. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, uh, brings to our attention the third of these characteristics in Mark of disciples that, you know, these are ones that I think we haven't covered or touched on. I'm trying not to be repetitive Uh, in this study, but maybe I have. I know I have repeated a couple of things in all these. It's hard not to with so many and such a long text of notes here. But in Mark chapter 5 and verse 31, it says, But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And I took this to mean that the disciple sometimes misunderstands what the Lord means by what he says. And verse 30 is what he said. He, He turned around and in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? He was not interested in just the identification of the person, but of the power that went out from him to heal this person and that expression of faith that was associated with that thing. And so sometimes the disciples misunderstand the, the real you know, direction that the Lord is going with a statement or question. Sometimes also, number four, disciples, as far as Mark's gospel goes, number four, sometimes disciples lack understanding. Mark 7.17. Mark 7.17. 
when he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And verse 18 says, So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? This, uh, In fact, I'll read 19. Because it does not enter his heart but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. So the Lord exposes a misunderstanding of the disciples. They were thinking in their old kind of traditions-based mindset that if I eat certain foods, I'm going to be defiled. And the Lord is saying, at least now, at this point, when the Lord is there, that does not apply. Food never actually defiled somebody itself. Violating God's command certainly exhibited a defilement. But sometimes we lack understanding about things And the virtue that I want to emphasize to you about that is if you know that disciples sometimes lack understanding, you might lack understanding, and therefore you should be humble. Okay? I should be humble. I don't know your circumstances, even though I might be concerned about something going on in your life. You don't know what's going on maybe in somebody else's life or in the rest of the church or, or whatever, you need to be humble in that because you recognize that disciples sometimes lack understanding of what God is doing. Number five, sometimes disciples look in the wrong direction for their provision. This back to the feeding of the 4,000. The, the Lord says, you do something for them. The disciples answered, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? They were looking to a, a kind of a humanistic or secular means to supply the needs of the crowd, and the Lord wanted them to look elsewhere for that need, toward him, in fact, toward God. Number six, disciples sometimes think in ways that are entirely opposite of how the Lord thinks. Mark 8:32. Oh, we are, I already mentioned this one this, this, uh, this evening. He spoke these words about his suffering and crucifixion and all. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And so the disciples were thinking, at least Peter was, something totally opposite of what was right. That, again, is one of those things where we need to be humble. I could be very wrong in my thinking at any particular point in time, and I need to uh, hold my my uh, position, if you will, with care and with humility. Uh, Mark chapter 9, another one, Mark nine eighteen. Sometimes uh, disciples cannot always do what they're expected to be able to do. Mark nine eighteen 18 uh, says, wherever this uh, spirit, this demon spirit seizes this, this young person, it throws him down, he foams at the mouth, he gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. So they were expected to be able to do this because they were doing it in other circumstances. But this one was a particularly difficult situation. They were not always able to do what they were expected to do. It just comes to mind off the top of my head, you know, we're expected to make disciples. Do you know how to do that? Maybe you don't and you need to learn. We're not talking about miraculous things or demon uh, exorcisms or anything like that, but just the basics. Do you know what you need to do 
to make a disciple, to, sh- to lead someone to saving faith in Christ. Learn if you don't. Mark 9.31. Disciples must be ready for some difficult teaching, such as, verse 31, For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after he is killed he will rise again the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and were afraid to ask him. We have to be ready to receive some difficult teaching. Some not only difficult to understand, but difficult, if we understand it, to accept it. And then finally, for Mark's Gospel, chapter 14 and verse 32, jumping ahead a little bit here, Mark 14, 32. This is the just before the crucifixion, and it says they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. This is after the Last Supper. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. What do I draw from this? Disciples do not always get to be involved in the action directly. Sometimes the Lord says, sit here while I do something. And uh, that's a good emblem for us because when it comes to sharing the gospel with someone, ultimately we share and then we have to sit on the sideline and wait for God to work, to see God work in the midst of that. It's God who's do, who does the work. We don't, we're not always involved in the, in the inner workings of the action. Sometimes the Lord sets us aside and has us just watch what he is doing. We can't control a situation, but we can watch what God is doing. Well, we're going to run uh, short of time. Let me uh, go through some more of these, this time from Luke's Gospel. And I'll try to uh, just bring you a, a bit of a summary statement of each one. In Luke's Gospel 9.54, sometimes disciples think to treat people in very ungodly ways. Luke 9.54. This is the one where they asked the Lord if he wanted them to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did. You know, these characteristics of disciples, especially the shortcomings or the challenges, are ones which sometimes do mark us as followers of Christ, but they're ones that should not habitually mark us. They're ones that we should grow out of. They're ones that we should repent of, ones that we should change. And uh, sometimes Christians do treat others in a very ungodly way. You've seen it often, probably uh, if you've studied church history or you've seen it as you've heard of church splits, church dissensions. How is it that Christians treat other people in such ungodly ways? Well, because they have the sin nature involved in, in, their, in their lives, and perhaps they're not even Christians. That could be a, a possibility as well. But some believers do go off the rails at times. All believers go off the rails at times, and some in very bad ways and not self-control and stuff like that. So disciples uh, sometimes treat people very badly. Another one, the disciple is blessed to see and understand the things that God has shown them. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear the things that Jesus was telling them. He said many disciples, or any prophets rather, desired to see the things which you see, and they did not, but you do. And we should have that similar awe and wonder and thanksgiving that, you know, we have the entirety of God's revelation right here. 
and we can see things that Abraham didn't see, that Moses didn't see or know. We do. We have that privilege, and thank God for that. Another characteristic of a disciple is given in Luke 11.1. Luke 11.1, Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So a mark of a, a Christian disciple is that he wants to learn how to pray. Let me put it this way. Do you want to learn how to pray better? That desire is not a worldly desire. That is the desire of a person born again by the Spirit of God. I want to learn how to pray God through Christ. That is a good desire. That's a a life-affirming desire. That is, it affirms that you have a measure of spiritual life. Of course, coupled with true belief in Christ. I'm not talking about, you know, I just want to pray to some gods out there, but you, you know you're praying to the true and living God through Christ. We desire to learn how to pray. Teach us to pray, Lord. Teach us to pray. Isn't there a hymn that has those words in that? Yeah, that's what we want. We have that desire. We seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, just like the Lord said in Matthew 16, the same in Luke 12. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. All these other things will be added to you. A disciple uh, follows Jesus even to, the, to death. That's Luke 14, verse number 27. Remember, take up your cross and follow. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Disciples long to see the day of the Lord. Uh, this is increasingly the case for me as I've been more in the Word and more longer walking with the Lord that my desire is to see him return, to be with him and all the saints, <clears throat> excuse me, in heaven, uh, in the kingdom, and then in heaven. Uh, that is a tremendous thing, tremendous desire, and we long to see that. Again, it's kind of a measure of how many strings are holding you down to the earth and how many are pulling you up toward heaven. What's the, you know, what's the balance of those? Some people have a whole bunch of chains down here to the earth and maybe a couple strings up to heaven, you know, rubber bands, but they're not strong enough, as it were, and so their desires keep getting dragged down. But our desire is really the, the, the kingdom of God and following Jesus to the death, even if we have to, and seeing the day of the Lord. We also heed the warnings that we see in the Bible about false teachers we believe in the Lord, obviously. Disciples do. I'm moving into John's gospel now, some of the things that I found there. Disciples connect to uh, Jesus' ministry, what he uh, taught or what was taught in the Old Testament. Um, it says the disciples in John 2 heard Jesus talk about in, um, destroy this temple and in what? Three days I will raise it up again. He's talking about the temple of his body. Later on, the disciples, the little light bulb went on, and they're like, oh, that's what he meant. They got it. And so that happens. You know, we connect. Well, it's like another case where the disciples went and they got him a, a colt, and he rode that colt into Jerusalem, 
And then afterwards, they realized that they had done these things to him, which were fulfillments of Zechariah's prophecy. Chapter 9, your king comes riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And they're like, wow, we're we're making connections here. The Old Testament, the New Testament. Disciples also baptized people. John chapter 4, the disciples were baptizing. Uh, Some disciples are not really disciples at all, but they're what I call fair-weather disciples, not true followers of Jesus. In John chapter 6, in verse 66, it says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Here's where you have to have enough kind of exegetical fortitude to be able to say, there is the word disciple there, but if they don't walk with him anymore, then they're not real Christian disciples. They were half-hearted. They were fake. They were pretend. They were okay with it up to a point, but when the Lord got to teaching some of those hard things, remember that we mentioned a few minutes ago, they walked away from him. Sometimes disciples ask wrong questions. John chapter 9. Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Well, that was not a good question, because neither the man sinned nor his parents sinned. See, that's, that, that whole question was based on a wrong theology. The theology is, in their mind, or was in their mind, look, if some bad thing has happened to you, it must be because of something you did. You're a bad person. And that's not true. Sometimes people are born blind through no fault of their own. Sometimes people are injured and made blind through no fault of their own. Perhaps it's the sin of somebody else, the oppression of someone else that put them into a bad circumstance. And so the disciples were asking the wrong question. The disciples could have asked this question, how can God be glorified in the midst of this man's blindness? Jesus, could you help us understand that? Well, Yes, he can, because he was going to heal that man's blindness and thus glorify God. A couple more here, and then we'll be done. If you're a disciple of Jesus, that's not the same as a disciple of Moses. The Pharisees said, we are Moses' disciples. We're not your disciples. In fact, that's in the same passage about the blind man in John 9 and verse number 28. They, are, they themselves are making this distinction. They said to him, uh, well, he, the, man, the blind man said, I told you already and you did not listen. What do you, why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? 28, they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. So they're making the distinction. We're following Moses. We're going to follow him all the way to our death. You know, I'm a Jew. I'm always going to be a Jew. You know, I'm a Catholic, I'm never going to not be a Catholic. Please, if you find that it's incorrect, give it up. Turn to the Lord. He's the Messiah. He's the Jewish Messiah. To be a a follower of Christ is is to be a, a Jew, properly so. Disciples do not always understand things at first, but later on they do. We talked about that a little bit already. Here's another one. Disciples are marked for love, with love for one another. This is how all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. If you don't have love for your fellow brothers, if you don't care about other people, 
other church people, other Christian people, then you're not a disciple of Jesus. Don't be deceived. Okay? Disciples are marked by love for one another. Of course, sometimes we falter in that love. We get upset. We don't, you know, we, we think we don't like somebody or something like that. But this is important. We love one another. Disciples bear fruit to glorify God, John 15. And finally, disciples care for one another and for each other's family. Jesus looked at John, the disciple whom he loved, and he assigned him a task. You care for my mom. And he did. Took her into his own home uh, until at that very time, at that very day. So we've seen all the verses Uh, more or less, that talk about disciples in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and also the book of Acts. 250 plus times the Bible mentions the word disciple or disciples, uh, and there, of course, there are many other, you know, references to them because the word doesn't have to be used for the reference to be there. But uh, this is what disciples look like. This is what we are trying to be and do, and this is what our product is in the church. We're to make disciples, that is, to make people that are like this. And you are to be like this, and I am to be like this. And so we uh, commend that to you tonight. We entrust that to you, that you will not soon forget it, and that you'll remember this study for a while about what a disciple looks like and some of their shortcomings and so on. And be encouraged. Keep walking with the Lord. Remember the Lord said if you... um, you know, take up your cross daily and follow him, you be his disciple. If you don't want to do that, if you have no desire to be with him, no desire to learn from him, no desire to pray, no desire to love your fellow brothers, then you're quite sure that you're not a disciple at all. And so we ask, would you consider becoming a disciple of Christ if that's true in your life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you will work in our hearts in accordance with the need that is presented there to you, whether to become a disciple or to mature in our discipling uh, activities, whether to make more disciples or to know what we're making. You know, pray your help. Help our church to be a kind of church that is pleasing in your sight because we know what a disciple is and we act like it. And that's what we seek to make in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to wish you a good night, and uh, just after 7 o'clock tonight, I hope that uh, you will have a blessed evening and a good week. Stay busy for the Lord, and uh, stay close. Amen. Good night.